0: Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Uh, Today's episode is a bit of a departure from our normal format. Uh, I sat down and interviewed Heather Arndt Anderson. She is a food historian and the author of two books uh, Portland, a Food Biography, about my and her native city, and also Breakfast, a History. And we talked about the origins of cereal and orange juice, drinking at breakfast, industrial espionage, and you know what? Just just listen to the interview. Anyways, here it is. All right, so I'm talking here today with Heather Arden Anderson, and she is the author of Breakfast: A History, also Portland, Oregon, a food biography, or is it just Portland? A food it's bi- just Portland, a food. Bi- Portland, a food biography, <clears throat> and an upcoming book about peppers, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so I just want to start by asking why study food and food history
1: well food is the the great regulator in society everyone has to eat and i think it's a really uh interesting way to study history because it's uh it's a form of women's history and uh, it's an interesting way to examine uh, uh, demographics changes in class and um just the the travel of explorers it's uh and i love food
0: okay so your book, Breakfast in History, uh, we actually just had breakfast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you make awesome biscuits and gravy. Thank you. Yeah. How long has breakfast, in the modern sense, the way that we understand it, how long has that existed?
1: Well, I think the, the kinds of foods that we think of as being breakfast foods have really been part of the American diet for about the last 150 years or so, mm-hmm. um, maybe a little bit longer. Before that, in the 18th century- People of upper classes uh, sat down to ponderous tables of uh, food. You know, they'd have pork chops or mutton chops. They'd have uh plate of eggs. They'd have grits and uh, corn cakes and maybe some other kinds of pancakes, some stewed fruits, and um, just an inordinate amount of food, the kind of food that you would see in a hotel buffet. And that was what uh, the upper classes just had on their banquets every day. But then uh, when the invention of cereal occurred in the late 19th century, uh, breakfast became a little bit less stodgy. Um, The vegetarians certainly had an interest in moving away from meat and egg heavy breakfasts. But uh, there was also a shift in the types of work that people were doing. Um, There was more of a field of what they called brain work. People who weren't toiling for a living, but were doing um, intellectual types of work. And they just didn't need the same amount of calories as a farmer. So a bowl bowl of oatmeal or a bowl of cereal was perfectly suitable.
0: Mm -hmm. This might sound like a weird question, Mm -hmm. but eggs. Mm -hmm. You know, eggs are now strongly identified as a breakfast food. Yes. And I think of like sitting down and making scrambled eggs for breakfast, totally mm-hmm. normal. Making scrambled eggs for lunch and dinner, suddenly it seems weird. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why Why did this one protein source get so identified with uh, the morning meal?
1: That's a really interesting question. And it's one that I haven't fully answered um, for myself because in some cultures, eating eggs for dinner still does happen. Um, you know, like shakshuka is not totally a breakfast food in Turkey or in the Middle East, you know, it's a kind of an eggs stewed in tomatoes. And in Spain, of course, they'll eat like Spanish tortilla, which is like an omelet. And they'll have that as a tapa in the afternoon. And so I think it's really an American thing. I think that a lot of it has to do with the time of day in which chickens lay eggs.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, chickens, you know, the, the best tasting eggs are freshly laid and chickens tend to, to lay their eggs in the morning. Um, that's one reason that uh, I've been able to identify. I think that eggs are also really fast to cook, which mm-hmm. is a, an incentive. Um, things that are fast and easy um, tend to be foods we gravitate toward in the morning.
0: Okay. Cool. I want to back up a little, though. You mentioned okay. the invention of cereal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did the modern breakfast cereal really come to be when you think of, you know, bowl of Cheerios or cornflakes or whatnot? Mm-hmm. What, what is the history behind
1: that? Well, uh, there was this guy, um, Jackson. Uh, he was a an early proponent of the uh, the clean living movement mm-hmm. uh, that happened in Jacksonian, just a coincidence, Andrew Jackson. Um, pe- uh, American people were moving away from this elitist, um, intellectual, upper class um, philosophy of living, and were moving more toward working class, um, you know, valuing the autonomy that working people are just honoring the intelligence that average people have. Um, brown bread and whole grains became very popular. There was uh, a rise in vegetarianism and the, the idea that uh, all you need was clean water and whole grains to, to power through your life. So uh, Jackson, Caleb Jackson invented these uh, this grainy cereal called uh, granula, and it was uh, like these little crunchy stone rocks. And the, the idea was that it was supposed to be easy for housewives to prepare, but they actually had to be soaked overnight because they were so firm. Um, and then Sylvester Graham, you know, of graham cracker fame, it came out uh, right after that the same era, along with uh, William Andrus Alcott. These guys were big time vegetarian grain like cereal eating dudes but the cereal that we think of today as being the most famous uh, did come about um from john harvey kellogg of mm-hmm. you know kellogg's he and his brother will keith kellogg um, were running a sanitarium in battle creek michigan uh where rich people could go and basically clean up their bodies it was like these uh day spas for rich people to go do cleanses mm-hmm. and uh much like the rich people do today, they go on these retreats up in, you know, the sand, spend a week away, um, taking cold baths and exercising and eating lots of uh, healthy foods. One day they had a pot of porridge on the stove and, uh, they got called away from the kitchen. And when they came back, it had, um, kind of not burned, but dried out quite a bit and was sort of unpalatable. And so they decided to try to save it. And uh, they spread it out on a sheet to dry and then rolled it between rollers. And it produced this kind of flaky cereal.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. And so they started um, serving that to the clients at the San. And it was a big hit. Everyone loved it. And so they started producing it in earnest. Uh, but then the problem was that since it was based in, on corn and uh, grains that had a high fat content, it, they tended to go rancid pretty quickly and so will suggested that they add sugar to the mix to make it uh, to improve its shelf life and uh john was like absolutely not mm-hmm. um he really didn't want to destroy the the salubrious qualities of the <laughs> the cornflakes and that caused a great fraternal rift actually that the choice to to use sugar versus no sugar and it was uh, actually the uh the cereal that will started producing that is Kellogg's today. That's the the company that was launched by the the brother who wanted to add sugar. Really, mm-hmm.
0: that's funny because when I think of Kellogg's, I usually think of John Harvey Kellogg.
1: Mm-hmm. There's
0: of course that movie The Road to Well oh, Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always assumed that it was the John Harvey Kellogg, not the other Kellogg. But the like there was a brotherly dispute over whether or not sugar should be in cornflakes. That's right. Were they on speaking terms or anything? or what? How no, they,
1: um, when uh, John died, they were completely estranged. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> they were not, yeah, they didn't speak. Again, it was very tense.
0: So um, how did that evolve into sort of the modern breakfast cereal? Like, how did other people get on board and, and
1: whatnot? Well, C.W. Post had been a a client at the San. Mm -hmm. He had stayed, and he had had some of that cereal. And uh, he kind of had it in his mind, like, hey, I'm going to start making this for myself. I'm going to start my own line. Mm -hmm. And he was doing some other stuff, too. He was making some, um, God, what was that stuff called? Post Toastum which was this... Uh, post Toastum? Toastum. Oh, Toastum. Yeah, it was a coffee substitute made of uh, toasted grains and chicory. And uh, so, yeah, he was that sort of had a, an entrepreneurial mind. I know, but, you know, if you're... Uh, what was it? The, the Mormon Church? No, not the Mormons. Good grief. The Seventh-day Adventists. They um, abstain from caffeine. So uh, Post asks to, to go on a tour of the, the factory where the cereal is being made. And Will's like, yeah, sure, come on board. And so he uh, took all this, the secrets the proprietary information and launched Post Serial um, and started competing with them. And uh, I think that kind of opened up the floodgates for other serials and other competitors. And-
0: so what you're saying is that Post went on a tour of their facility mm-hmm. and while ostensibly just on a tour, actually engaged <laughs> in industrial <laughs> espionage. Yes. And then started his own cereal company. Yes, that, that is, is right. awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Kellogg's got revenge later, um, <laughs> much later in the 1960s, when a post had launched Country Squares, which were the precursor to Pop-Tarts. Um, but Kellogg's got uh, went to the information and actually launched just before um, Country Squares. And also the name Country Squares is terrible. So it was never mm-hmm. going to fly back in the days when, uh, you know, the... Beverly Hillbillies and, you know, Gomer Pyle, like Country Squares were not hip. Plus, you know, squares. It oh. just didn't. So, yeah, Pop-Tarts uh, still bestseller. Country Squares never stood a chance. And uh, Kellogg's sort of got their revenge.
0: So Country Squares were like the Hydrox to Pop-Tarts Oreos. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. By the way, I've always felt bad for Hydrox because they were first and everyone thinks they're a knockoff. Ah, uh, they They're, have the worst name, I though. know. I, try, I know. Hydrugs. It sounds like an industrial product. <laughs>
1: it sounds like something you add to your laundry. <laughs> yeah,
0: um, going back, though, uh, before we uh, turn the mic on, you mentioned something about how way back when—I know we're jumping all over the timeline here—but mm-hmm. way back when uh, only children and invalids were allowed to eat breakfast. Oh, And yeah. I said, hold that thought. Let's talk about it on uh, mic. So what was with that?
1: Well, uh, in, during in- the medieval era— um, as we know, there's great classism. Um, there were the upper classes who had to do very little, and then there was everyone else who did all the work. And, uh, and the people who are writing these um, etiquette guides, of course, were writing them for the upper classes. So children and uh, invalids or the elderly or um, the people who really did have to do toiling uh, labor, those were the only people who were allowed to eat breakfast because uh, breakfast was considered a form or was a type of gluttony. And uh, because if you were a proper citizen, you would not have needed those extra calories um, during the day. Also, you know, people would eat supper at like 10 p.m. back in the medieval era mm-hmm. and uh, and then sleep quite late. So they didn't need to – they really didn't need the, the calories. Um, yeah, and it was in a lot of etiquette books. It was uh, sort of beat on the, the pulpit um, into people that – regular people should not eat breakfast. And so what a lot of people did to skirt the issue is they'd keep a little posset pot next to the bed and, um, or they'd have a coddle coddles and possets, I think are ready for their comeback. It's a, It's basically like curdled cream with maybe a little bit of egg mixed in um, that is uh, sitting on a a pot of hot sack wine or ale. And so Mm -hmm. you have this warm spiced ale or wine and then this kind of creamy porridge that sort of curdles and floats the top. And so this posset pot was kind of like a teapot. Um, It had a little container on top um, or a little lid and you could spoon out the custardy stuff and then tip the teapot and drink the warm spiced booze that's in the pot. And so people just kept this on their nightstand next to their bed.
0: Huh.
1: And if you got, if you woke up a little bit peckish, you would just take a tip off your coddle and, uh, and then you wouldn't really need breakfast because it was just liquid.
0: Okay. So that was like a workaround. You're Consuming caloric liquid. Yes. That's not gluttony. Right. Fascinating. Um, you also brought up booze. Yeah. Now, Bloody Mary's <clears throat> acceptable brunch drink. Right. Mimosa's. Sure. Acceptable brunch drink. Mm-hmm. And that's the only morning booze that anymore is socially acceptable.
1: Screwdrivers are allowed.
0: Okay. I, a friend of mine actually orders screwdrivers at brunch and sometimes the wait staff will look at him kind of weird. But
1: Those people, don't, yeah. No, got juice. It's breakfast. Right.
0: Um when did humans in general, we're talking in great broad brush terms, mm-hmm. stop drinking at breakfast?
1: Um, Well, you know, when we had cleaner water is really when it happened. Um, Benjamin Franklin was uh, very famously um, a complainer about his employees drinking during the day. And it's Mm -hmm. not because they were all a bunch of drunks, but it's because there wasn't really potable water. Um, We didn't have plumbing. I think that Portland's water system didn't come until the early 1900s, right?
0: I I would have to look that up. I should know. Yeah, I should know as well. <laughs>
1: um,
0: Bull Run, which apparently doesn't have the body of a good old Willamette,
1: right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <is> so disgusting.
0: <laughs>
1: who said that? Was that, uh, that was Sylvester
0: Pinoyer, Governor? Yeah, of Oregon, who Remember? God. I mean, side note for listeners who have no idea what we're talking about: there was a governor of Oregon who apparently disliked the water from the Bull Run watershed, which is mountain runoff. It's snowmelt. Pristine. It's pristine. Um, however, he preferred the Willamette river, which had, um,
1: human feces.
0: <laughs> he said it had body.
1: <laughs> it probably had a few bodies floating yeah. <laughs> <of> back
0: then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, uh, there was a governor of Oregon who famously drank in public a large thing of Willamette river water and declared that it was uh, tasty, but anyways, I'm we're sorry. talking
1: about yeah, we didn't have potable water. Mm hmm. Europeans and, uh, well, England and um, America certainly was a uh, water quality limited times. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't like they're sitting around drinking these 9% alcohol doppel box. I mean, they mm-hmm. drank what was called small beer and it had a small amount of alcohol in it, but just enough to make it a little bit more sanitary And uh, plus, I think everyone just had a really high tolerance for alcohol. Children drank beer um, and ale, and that was the beverage that they had. Um, Europeans didn't even get coffee, tea, or chocolate uh, to drink until the 17th century. And so they didn't have any caffeinated beverages. It was just, um, I guess you could drink milk. That would would be the other choice. Didn't get juice. I mean, juices weren't available until... I'd say the, the beginning of the twentieth century. Really? Mm-hmm. That's well, unless you squeezed it yourself and lived in a place that grew oranges.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, yeah.
0: I mean I suppose that makes sense. Orange juice, um, when you think about it, that's dependent upon a whole bunch of factors of you know, moving oranges around Transport, yeah. yeah. So yeah, how did let's just let's just go there. Okay. Orange juice. <laughs> Oranges, when you think about it, having those as a year-round thing is kind of a modern convenience because it's a picky fruit. It doesn't grow everywhere. It only grows at a certain time of year. Mm -hmm. And yet now the juice of this formerly scarce fruit is just like a regular thing that people have all the time.
1: Well, there was a a flu outbreak um, in the early 1900s that um, people were dropping like flies. And so this Dr. Lasker... Um, started suggesting that people feed orange juice to their children to help keep them from getting the flu um, and that was uh that was really what set it off as being not just this like special occasion beverage to have like you know in the afternoon with the ladies mm-hmm. or in the evening, but yeah having it at the breakfast table um became very much uh a thing in order to sort of prevent kids from getting sick.
0: Did it actually work?
1: Um, no, it didn't because it's (laughs) not an antiviral, but it, uh, you know, and we also didn't have a refrigeration for a, you know, until pretty late. Average households didn't have refrigeration until about the twenties or thirties or so. Maybe a little bit earlier for people who had money. Um, but yeah, people had ice boxes. They didn't have room to have things like orange juice. Um, people who lived near California or near Florida could get it, but everywhere in the middle of America, you know, they didn't. It was too expensive. Maybe mm-hmm. Texas had grapefruit juice.
0: Yeah. Okay. What about, say, breakfast pastries like bagels or croissants or like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I love bagels. I mm-hmm. love croissants. And the idea of sitting down and having a bagel with dinner, mm-hmm. again, I'm like, who does that?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But how did, how did things like that, those bread products become identified with early in the morning type stuff?
1: Um, you know, People used to always eat bread for breakfast, and that was actually a, a great part of the working man's breakfast was usually some bread and cheese and a little bit of ale. That was often it, maybe a little bit of meat if he was uh, had some left over. Um, danishes had been invented as a dessert, and they were eaten at breakfast, uh, you know, pretty late. Uh, I'd say, God, it was like the, the end of the 19th century. But in Europe, the place where they came from, People still mostly just ate an open-faced open-faced sandwich for breakfast. It was a butterbrot of you know bread with cheese and maybe a slice of meat on it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Danish, as we know today, was not invented to be a breakfast food. Um, I think that people have always enjoyed having a bready product, and then the bagel didn't really become a main part of the breakfast uh, outside of Jewish ghettos until Lender invented the, the freezer or the frozen bagel so that people could have them in grocery stores.
0: Oh, really? And it was
1: pretty late. Yeah.
0: Oh, man. I, I ate so many Lenders bagels when I was a kid.
1: Oh, yeah. Even horrible ones like the blueberry ones. Did you eat the blueberry ones? Oh, I hated those. I used no, to I, I preferred the like
0: uh, the the onion ones, I think, were my Oh, favorite.
1: yeah. I love the onion ones. One of my favorite kind of ghetto white trashy treats is blueberry bagel and you mix um strawberry jam with the cream cheese and put that on there and it's it's kind of like cake
0: it's really good (laughs) (laughs) what about the croissant
1: oh man the croissant has a pretty uh has a contested history and i don't remember
0: so so i want to ask i want to ask you about something because there's the mythological origin of the croissant Mm -hmm. which is that the Ottomans had Vienna under siege and the Viennese triumphed over them. And uh, in celebration, they made a crescent-shaped pastry because it's on their flags, it's on their battle standards, it's a symbol of Islam. It's kind of like if we were to finally vanquish Canada and celebrate with maple leaf-shaped cookies. Right. And the croissant was uh, delicious Viennese pastry-based triumphalism. Is that... A thing? Was that actually real based on your research or is that just kind of like pastry mythology?
1: I don't think that it's true. I mean, the 1830s, I did remember August Zhang, who's a Viennese baker, he renamed the croissant um, because of its crescent shape.
0: Mm-hmm. Originally it was called a Vienn, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was called a Kipferl. Kipferl? Yeah, because he was Viennese. Mm hmm. It was not a part of the breakfast table um, until pretty late. And I think Dickens actually wrote about it. And he had this book or this magazine called Table Talk. And he he did mention it as being a a dainty part of the boudoir table. Um, It just wasn't, it wasn't really a mainstay. These little pastries and special fancy things were really just for rich people. Nobody else had them. And so I don't think of them as being that crucial to the story of Breakfast.
0: Okay, so the idea that de being made is like a wartime pastry celebration over Ottoman destruction in Vienna. Probably not true.
1: I don't think it's true, oh, no. You're breaking my heart. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, no, the Viennese were doing a lot of baking. And gosh, you know, by the 1830s, wasn't the Ottoman Empire pretty much done?
0: Uh, the Ottoman Empire was done for a long time. I mean, the 1800s are, you know, a period of time in where... <laughs> If you were to look at one of those like time lapse maps of like area of a thing, mm-hmm. like they're all already the internet. And you would click on out of an empire over time. Mm-hmm. In the eighteen hundreds you can kind of watch it shrink. You know, yeah, their, it was their, their influence recedes. In, yeah. North Africa, Egypt, along the Arabian Peninsula, and then by World War One they're just bam
1: gone. I yeah. <laughs> um I didn't think that they had much to do with northern Europe at all anyways. As far as like I mean like the northern parts, I guess in Eastern Europe and the Baltic Mm-hmm. Or the Balkan regions, but I feel like Northern Europe and the Scandinavian countries didn't have to deal with the Ottomans too much.
0: Ottoman Ottoman <laughs> excursion, suddenly. <laughs> what about bacon? Um, because I would never um I would never just like have some bacon with dinner. And this is this is a theme where I'm thinking like, why are certain foods socially appropriate for breakfast and certain foods not socially appropriate for dinner? Um right.
1: Uh, bacon didn't become an essential part of the breakfast table in America anyway, mm-hmm. until one nephew of Sigmund Freud insisted in an advertising campaign that it was true. What? Yeah. His name was Edward Bernays. He was hired by um, the Beechnut Corporation who, at the time, I guess, was not just in the uh, candy business, but was also making pork products. Uh, They hired Bernays, who was one of America's earliest public relations gurus, to put a spin on bacon because this was, you know, just coming off the heels of the clean living, um, you know, let's have whole, whole wheat cereal toast and a glass of juice for breakfast every day. So Bernays... Pulled these doctors with this kind of tricky wording um, on a letter saying, hey, uh, if you had to recommend to your patients either a light breakfast or a hearty breakfast, which would you say is healthier? And, you know, almost unanimously, the doctor said, well, yes, a hearty breakfast is healthier. And then he said, "Okay, well would you would you say that bacon and eggs is a hearty breakfast? And they would say yes, and so he extrapolated this and was able to launch a campaign saying that nine out of ten doctors agree that bacon and eggs is a healthy breakfast oh my god and um yeah, and I joke in the book that uh like three years later the American Heart Association was founded
0: um. <laughs> this. So it was a marketing thing.
1: Yeah, it was all a marketing ploy. I mean, people certainly ate bacon. Um, the word bacon actually just pertains to any sort of smoked and cured meat. And so there was baconed herring or kippered herring. Huh. Um, was just a yeah to put some salt and smoke on a food was to have it be baconed.
0: Huh. And then it gradually turned into like the the, the pig part that we all know mm-hmm. and love.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Huh. Fascinating.
1: Yeah, in England, people did. Eat, I mean, there was bacon on the breakfast table, but it was never the center of the the plate.
0: It was never like the worshipped food that it is today No, it's by great. all corners of the internet. Yes, that's true. Do you think bacon is over, by the way? I mean, bacon had kind of a moment in the 2000s.
1: Yeah, I think that bacon jumped the shark when they started trying to put it in beer and vodka. Um, <laughs> that, yeah... Bacon's delicious, but it just doesn't need to be in everything.
0: Did you try the voodoo donuts? Uh, yes. Beer? Oh god,
1: so disgusting. There was so a, yeah. disgusting.
0: For those of you who haven't heard of, heard of it, a Portland brewery made a bacon maple porter uh, in partnership with uh, our local tourist trap voodoo donut, mm-hmm. and uh, it tasted terrible. It tasted like uh, it tasted like a salty weasel's butt.
1: Yeah, it's gross with some like syrup on top. <laughs> It was nasty. Are
0: there any like major anecdotes or episodes from the history of breakfast that you particularly enjoy?
1: There is one, yes, and it's it's tangentially related to breakfast in that it features oatmeal. Um, there was a thirteenth, uh, no, fourteenth century Swedish satanic cult. <laughs> That And this is all during some witch trials, so we know that it wasn't really, but it was a, a satanic sex cult where they would, um, as part of their satanic ritual, and this was in blockula Sweden, they would um, have these, like, big bowls of oatmeal and some cabbage soup, and then they would, like, you know, s- sacrifice a person and then have sex and dance around a fire, and it was just this big... Um yeah, scary Swedish sex satanic sex cult and that ate oatmeal and bacon and well, cabbage
0: soup. Like ritualistically ate oatmeal and bacon. Yeah,
1: it was part of their it was part of their big and this was all told by a person who was forced to be there <laughs> um and was on trial for being a Satanist.
0: So somebody was on trial for being a Satanist, Mm -hmm. and they were testifying about like all of the things that they saw. Yeah, and that included oatmeal and bacon and yes. Wow,
1: (laughs) oatmeal is a lot more interesting than you think.
0: Yeah, I think of (laughs) satanistic food, and I think of or satanic food, and I think of like I don't know uh, raw liver, right, right, (laughs) field duck eggs. Right, a pig's head on a yeah. steak.
1: Nope. Nope. Oatmeal is uh, more than meets the eye.
0: Was oatmeal considered particularly alar- alarming at that time or place?
1: No, I just think that's what they ate in Sweden because they in Northern Europe. They didn't have a lot of <laughs> other choices. All right.
0: So, yeah, toast.
1: We take it for granted because we can just put a piece of bread in a little machine and push a button and then mm-hmm. out pops this perfectly golden brown or dark brown piece of
0: toast. And where's the bread go? It's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> good one. I stole that from Calvin and Hobbes. It's a Calvin and Hobbes comic that's, that's
1: a good one. Okay. Um, yeah. But before we had toasters and there are some really beautiful examples of early Victorian toasters. They were super dangerous, dangerous as heck. And because there was basically just an open heating element and uh, people loved setting the toaster up on the table because it was this new, like, it was like a fun little robot in the kitchen that would do mm-hmm. this magic for you. And uh, so everyone would just gather around the toaster at the breakfast table, like it's, you know, a TV or something, and watch the bread turn into toast with this, like, red-hot heating element right there with little fingers just eager to to touch mm-hmm. the red-hot and get burned. But before that, um, they had... You basically had to toast over a fire, and so you'd take some kind of stale bread, and by you, I mean you being the the cook in this household, um, the girl who has to do this this job. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd put your, your fork full of bread, and um, you'd hold it gently over the fire until it was perfect, and then you'd have to butter it right away and make sure it got to your mistress or master immediately so that it was still hot and not getting cold and soggy. Um, and it took, it was very difficult to pull it off properly. And, you know, many um, ladies' maids' careers were, ma- were made or broken from this <laughs> this one task. So when the electric toaster was invented, it was a really, really big deal. It was a game changer.
0: So suddenly lots of put upon servants mm-hmm. no longer had to pull off this trick of making toast for their... The lord or lady of the manor, or yeah, whatever rich person that they were working for.
1: Yes, and then keeping it warm as it got to the table. And actually, there was one uh, one comment that a cookbook author um, wrote that was, "It must you just can't imagine the frustration of having finally executed toast properly and then have your boss not even eat it." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you'd either lose your job, or if you're the wife, you could definitely suffer your husband's wrath you didn't do the toast properly Mm -hmm. um or yeah but then the the toaster saved the day
0: so we've kind of danced around this so far but what were some of the class and gender issues surrounding the preparation of breakfast with regards to like who was doing the work who was you know consuming it you know who got to have it didn't get to have it etc what stands out for you
1: well breakfast is one of the meals that um, men are allowed to cook without jeopardizing their masculinity or their heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, along with barbecue, it's basically it. A man can cook breakfast on the weekends for his family, and he's the hero. Um, he is, uh, his status in the family is never compromised by his setting foot in the kitchen in that case. And I'm talking about you know, 50, 60 years ago when it right. was unheard of for men to, to spend any time cooking in, mm-hmm. in the household. Um, And it's also one of the meals that uh, children first learn to prepare for themselves. And so the uh, breakfast played a very big role in the liberation of um, mothers in mm-hmm. the households. And it's no coincidence that a lot of the convenience foods we have um, for breakfast came about uh, right after World War II or during World War II, when women weren't home to cook breakfast. So they needed to have something that a kid could just pour for themselves into a bowl or mix um, mix together, bisquick, you know, put something in the toaster. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think that breakfast played a very important and um, not very well-discussed role in the liberation of women.
0: Okay. It's interesting that you mentioned that about men preparing breakfast uh growing up my dad the only things that he you know knew how to cook when my mom was still alive was uh breakfast and barbecue he'd make pancakes mm-hmm. and uh when i after my mother died when i was 9 and had some siblings mm-hmm. he took cooking lessons oh yeah because he didn't know what he was doing mm-hmm. because those were the only socially sanctioned things mm-hmm. like bre- pancakes and ribs essentially mm-hmm. were his were his jam and everything else was a mystery
1: James Beard wrote fondly of uh, memories of his father's breakfast. Um, mm-hmm. Was the same kind of thing. It was the, the one special meal his dad would make was the little fried chicken and gravy. Huh. Breakfast. Yeah. Huh.
0: That is fascinating.
1: And I was reading. I don't remember if it was Esquire. It was a men's magazine, GQ. Maybe they pulled a dozen or so chefs, and a very like high percentage of them. They, the, the question was what food do you remember your dad making and a very high percentage of them it was breakfast foods that that stood out to them it was the thing that they remember their dad being good at or cooking
0: well you know you also think of and i'm not a sociologist this is me just kind of spitballing here mm-hmm. but you think of like some short order cook or something like that mm-hmm. and he's standing there over like a greasy thing of you know eggs and meat for a for a diner mm-hmm. and that is still like a symbol that's kind of tough and masculine
1: yeah yeah it you is know? I think that most professional cooks um, are male, and they are tough people. Um, so, yeah, the breakfast cook, though, cookie, you know, you just always think of some guy with a soiled apron, mm-hmm. and you leave the woman to the front of the house where she'll pour the coffee. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure why breakfast became a safe meal for men to cook, but I just noticed that it has.
0: Oh, huh. so breakfast. Is it actually the most important meal of the day?
1: There's a debate about whether or not skipping breakfast is deleterious to one's health. And the latest science suggests that it is NBD to skip breakfast.
0: It's not a big deal. That's right. Okay.
1: People who eat breakfast tend to consume fewer calories later in the day. People who skip breakfast are just automatically not eating those calories. So it sort of all comes out in the wash. Okay. But if you like to go out for biscuits and gravy or pancakes, then, you know, more power to you.
0: Heather, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed our first interview episode. Uh, Follow Heather uh, on Twitter at Voodoo Lily and follow me at Joe Streckert. And uh, look for Heather's books at Powell's.com, Amazon.com, or actual brick-and-mortar bookstores if you are into that. Uh, there are links to her books uh, at interestingtimespodcast.com, uh, as there are links to related stuff for every episode every week on the site. Uh, we're on Stitcher. We are also on iTunes. Search for us in the iTunes store. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a review. Thank you guys for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.